the 1970s, friends of my parents bought a three-storey house in West London. To six-year-old me, it was enormous. There were way too many rooms to keep track of, and there was this wide wooden staircase running through the house, from the hallway near the front door up through the centre. The doors on the rooms at the upper floors tended to be closed, so even in the middle of the day, it got dark pretty quickly as you went up the staircase. My parents' friends lived in the house with their three children, and there was also a lady living there who rented a room. Like I said, they had plenty of rooms. The kids and I got on like a house on fire, which is why I believed them when they whispered to me that the lodger who rented a room on the first floor was a witch. And she wasn't just a witch, she was a witch who ate children. I was six. This was perfectly believable. So I was, as you would be, terrified from that point onwards of setting foot on the first floor. Whenever I would climb that big wooden staircase in the house, I would creep from the front door to the first floor and then sprint along the first floor landing and up to the next floor. I was too scared even to turn around to see if the child-eating witch had heard me and was chasing me. My parents' friends still live in that house in London, and when I'm back there, I visit them. And every time I set foot on that first floor landing, I have to remind myself that none of it was true. The door in the back corner of the landing isn't going to fly open. There's no old hag with sharp teeth and a broomstick hell-bent on catching me to eat me. Aside from anything else, she was a child-eating witch, and I'm now a 43-year-old man. To be clear, it only takes a nanosecond to remind myself that there's no witch, but it's still a conscious process that I have to go through every time I'm in that house. And that's the power of stories. When even a story you know to be completely false still has a hold of you after nearly 40 years, you can't be in any doubt that there's no more powerful form of communication. I'm Stephen Lewis, and I run an agency that helps clients get their business message out. I spent 20 years as a journalist, and what I do is basically tell stories. The agency is called Tailist because of our focus on telling tales. My job is to make our clients as interesting as they possibly can be to the people they want to talk to. And that often involves getting them into a story. And this podcast is called Tale Making because it's about how you tell those tales in business. The good kind of tales, not the bad kind. Every week we're going to be talking about different ways to do that, to get your business message out. Not everything we talk about will be about using stories to do that, but stories are going to be a big part of it. A lot of the time I'm going to be interviewing other people about how they communicate. I'm going to be talking to people who've written books or who get their business message out in the ways that you'd expect. Articles, videos, podcasts, social media and so on. But messages and stories aren't just told in words. Photographs tell stories. Window displays tell stories. Clothes tell stories. Chefs tell stories with their menus. You might not be a photographer, a chef or a personal stylist, but I want to present every week all kinds of ways to tell stories because I believe we can always find inspiration in the way other people get their message out. This time, though, it's just you and me, and I wanted to talk a bit more about why I'm personally so focused on stories in business. 
The first thing is that people remember stories. After you've forgotten all the facts that I'm about to give you, you'll probably remember the story of a boy gullible enough to believe in child-eating witches and a man who still gets shivers down his spine standing outside the room he thought she lived in all those years ago. There's a number that ricochets around the internet and it purports to come from the Harvard and Oxford psychologist Jerome Bruner. The number goes like this. Bruner apparently found that facts contained in stories will be remembered for 20 times longer than facts delivered as just facts. Some websites and books say he found facts and stories would be remembered 22 times longer, not 20 times longer. I've spent hours trying to trace anything like that back to Bruner, and I can't find any reference to the source of that number, even though Bruner published prolifically. So I can't put a number on it for you, but I can tell you that stories last when facts don't. That has something to do with the second reason I love stories as a way of getting a message out. Stories engage our emotions, and we're much more likely to remember what we feel. The great thing about what you and I are talking about now is that I'm not telling you anything. You know all this already because you're human. There are some things about humans that are common to all of us, and this is one of them. You don't need me to tell you that feelings tap into something in you that's much more primitive than facts. Fight or flight is tied to how we feel about the threat, not about a calculation of how fast that spider might be able to cover the distance between us or a quick mental calculation of our percentage chances of surviving a bite as based on available data from the last Venom report we read. We remember things that made us happy or sad or scared out of our wits. The third reason I focus on stories is because people like getting information in stories, which means they're more likely to listen to what we'd like to tell them. My job is to get my clients' messages out there. It's a lot easier to do that when they're packaged in a way that makes people welcome them. Think about it. A huge percentage of our entertainment is wrapped up in storytelling. TV shows and films are stories. Novels are stories. Biographies, autobiographies, memoirs, they're all stories. Magazines and newspapers tell stories. We go out with our friends to socialise, to hear their stories and to tell our stories. We tell ourselves stories. When we see our boss in a meeting room with Karen from HR, we immediately speculate on why. We tell ourselves a story. Oh, it's nearly bonus time. They must be talking about the end of year review process. Watch yourself, watch your friends, watch your colleagues. How often do you or they... Fill in the blanks of a situation by making up a story for which you actually have no evidence. Terry's late home. He must have got stuck in traffic. We are our stories. If I ask you who you are, you'll tell me a story. I was born in London. My dad got a job in Hong Kong. We moved there when I was six. I went to school there, university in the UK, became a journalist, and so on. If you ask me who I am, I'm not going to give you a list of facts. Male, six foot tall, likes carbohydrates. We're hardwired to follow a narrative. Ira Glass from This American Life says, whenever there's a sequence of events, this happened, then that happened, then this happened, we inevitably want to find out more. It's the entire premise of his show, which on some measures is the most successful radio show in the world, and it just follows the storytelling formula. I walked into the supermarket yesterday, and you'll never guess what happened next. Maybe you'll guess, and maybe you won't but you will want to know what happened. 
your audience is not going to fiddle with their phones in a meeting when you're telling them this happened, then that happened, because they're wired to pay attention to a sequence of events. They literally need the payoff. It's why soap operas have cliffhangers. It's why you watch the last season of a TV show that went off the boil two years ago, because you have to find out how the characters end up. It's when your presentation goes back to running through some bullet points on a PowerPoint that the phones will come out again around the table. But what if you don't like the idea of telling stories? Maybe you think it sounds childish. What you want to do is persuade people with facts, reason and the force of argument. And that's the final thing I want to talk about. Stories persuade when facts can't. And believe me, I get it. Facts should carry the day. But they don't, and here's why. Two areas of the brain are activated when people are listening to somebody reading bullet points on a PowerPoint slide. They're the two bits responsible for language processing. They're the parts of our brain that turn the sound of someone speaking into meaning. That's it. Just two parts of the brain are engaged when someone's giving you a list of facts. But when we're telling a story, our audience still has to use those two parts of the brain to turn the sound of our voices into meaning but they also start using all the parts of the brain they'd be using if they themselves were actually in the story. Someone describes a beach to you and the bits of your brain that process vision come to life because you're picturing the beach. When I start telling you about a fragrant green chicken curry that I ate last night, the bits of your brain that process taste and smell wake up and salivate. Facts on their own just don't switch people's brains on, or they don't switch as much of their brains on anyway. That's one reason facts do a lousy job of persuading people to take action. I have a favourite cafe in Balmain near where I live, and recently they had a big poster in their window about their two cooks. The cooks are Nepalese, and the poster explained their families in Nepal had been made homeless by the earthquakes this year. The Post talked only in the briefest terms about how their families were living, but it was enough. When I paid for our coffees, I made a donation to the cafe's appeal. And although my wife made a donation to the Red Cross when we got home, I'm ashamed to say that that was the first we'd actually done, even though it had been a couple of weeks since the first quake. We'd certainly meant to, but the idea of 8,000 people dead and 1.6 million families needing help was too abstract. It took the story of two specific families to wake me up to the need and the fact that I could do something to help. If you think about it, how often do you read in the newspaper or see on TV that kind Samaritans have donated money to a family whose plight had made the news? Those stories often involve people in circumstances that you already know thousands of people are living in, but the story turns that abstract fact into something you can feel which is something you'll act on. So here's a final fact to convince you to keep listening to Tailmaking as the podcast continues. Persuading people is hard. It's not hard because it's hard to find good facts. It's hard because people don't want to change. Your customers are biased to stick to their status quo because people have a natural bias against change. Research shows that strongly held convictions actually harden in the face of contradictory facts. That's called confirmation bias. When scientists look at the brains of people faced with evidence that directly contradicts their favourite beliefs, 
It's not the cognitive reasoning parts of their brain that light up. It's the emotional parts. People don't like being shown they're wrong. Which brings us back to feelings. If you want to bring people along with you, you need to speak to their feelings. You need to speak to them in a way that doesn't confront them. How many of us have won a debate with a potential customer or client only to have them still say no to what we're offering? As with the Nepalese cooks in my favourite cafe, stories turn abstract ideas into something real. When you tell a story of how your product or service helps someone, your customer has a chance to come along with you and test drive the idea. It's completely different from sitting down with a client and basically telling them how what they have now or what they're doing now is no good. A story, on the other hand, is about someone else. So it's not confrontational at all. And it lets someone draw their own conclusions in an atmosphere where they're not feeling pressured. You're not attacking them. You're talking about someone else. So those are my arguments for why you should stick around and keep listening to the stories I'll be telling on Tailmaking. Join the mailing list at tailless.com. That's tail as in telling tales. And you'll be emailed when new episodes are up and when we have bonus material from our guests, which will all be going into our exclusive subscriber library, which is free. You can get it just by signing up at tailless.com. I'm Stephen Lewis, and this is the Tailmaking Podcast. I hope you're going to join me for what I know is going to be a series of fascinating conversations with really interesting people. Until the next story, thank you for listening. Next week on the Tail Making Podcast. Uh, you know what? This book has created so many amazing opportunities and I think that that's the thing about stepping into the spotlight and being known as an expert. So many opportunities happen which you don't even dream of. Sign up at tailmaking.com.